Welcome to the Insights at ULAR 2020 series, brought to you by the Cytokine Signaling Forum, where authors review their Congress posters and presentations on cytokine signaling and JAK inhibitors. My name is Dr. Len Calabrese. I'm a professor of medicine at the Cleveland Clinic. This edition focuses on safety of JAK inhibitors and features presentations from myself, Professor Kevin Winthrop, Professor Ian McInnes, and Professor Anja Strongfeld. The first two presentations focus on integrated safety data of upadacitinib and filgotinib from the SELECT and FINCH programs. Professor Winthrop will cover the integrated safety analysis of filgotinib shortly, but first I'd like to present the three-year safety data from the upadacitinib SELECT program. Uh, this is by a large group of investigators. The, the uh, presenting author of this is uh, Stanley Cohen. Uh, and uh, along with uh, a number of other um, uh, noted investigators, and uh, I'm happy to try to summarize this. So, um, upadacitinib is the most recent of the uh, approved uh, Janus kinase inhibitors, uh, having been on the market now for um, really uh, barely uh, a year. Uh, and as uh, with all new drugs, uh, appraising safety is uh, critically important. So this uh, study was designed uh, to describe the long-term integrated safety profile of upadacitinib um, in the SELECT trials. And this is a large uh, trial uh, a group, uh, almost 4,000 patients um, that were uh, followed for, uh, uh, the majority followed for uh, greater than two years. And within this, uh, there are a couple comparator groups, uh, one taking methotrexate, one taking adalimumab. And of course, as with all these studies, they're taking it a lot shorter period of time um, than the um, uh, drug of interest to patacitinib. So uh, in the final analysis, there's some age adjustment, adverse event profiling, as well as looking at overall safety profile and the risk profile. So with that in mind, um, this is a, a design that's used to look at uh, uh, most um, uh, drugs uh, now currently on the market. So wh what did we see? Well, first of all, there were no major surprises for this. Uh, and by and large, uh, the most common side effects were the kind of ubiquitous minor um, uh, infectious complications of nasopharyngitis, et cetera. Um, this is uh, a uh, you know, serious drug, member of the JAK inhibitor uh, class, and there were serious infections, and there were rare cases of opportunistic infections. But when actually examined with this uh, 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 time-dependent uh, adverse event uh, uh, adjusted analysis, comparing it to methotrexate and um, uh, adalimumab, there were no differences in the serious or opportunistic uh, infection rate. Now, one of the big things that was seen in this um, is dose effect from upadacitinib. And upadacitinib is approved at a 15 milligram dose uh, for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis. There is a 30 milligram dose, uh, which was not approved uh, uh, by the FDA. Um, and uh, virtually across all comparators, 
um, there's higher uh, rate of serious uh, complications um, in uh, the 30 milligram versus the 15 uh, milligram. It's particularly for infectious complications. Now there's two other uh, analysis I'd like to draw to your attention. One is VTEs, the venous thrombotic uh, 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 events. Um, this is a class effect, as uh, you all know, uh, with Janus kinase inhibitors. And uh, uh, interestingly, in this uh, long um, uh, 4,500 patient year uh, study, uh, the event rate was very low and palpably not different from methotrexate or adalimumab. So I think that's encouraging. Uh, still, uh, I don't think it gives us off the hook for risk mitigation. And then secondly, the major toxicity of this molecule, as you would expect, is zoster. And if you look at zoster, uh, first of all, it was seen highest in the 30 milligram group, which is we're not um, uh, uh, concerned about here. But in the 15 milligram group, most of the zoster was single dermatomal, but there were representative cases of, you know, uh, herpes zoster, ophthalmicus, some disseminated zoster. Uh, a small percentage of these patients had to be hospitalized. It's a, a significant complication. I will draw your attention uh, to another um, uh, uh, presentation um, at ULAR. Um, in fact, uh, this is called Characterization of Serious Infections um, uh, with Upadacitinib. And uh, so this first author is uh, Kevin Winthrop and uh, gives a lot of details um, uh, on the serious infections. Uh, I think all the more reason uh, that we need to risk mitigate, we need to vaccinate people with this. Uh, risk factors uh, for serious infections in the study were age over 75, um, uh, smoking, and for zoster, uh, previous episode of zoster. So no surprises overall uh, is my major conclusion. 15 milligrams uh, appears to be on par with methotrexate adalimumab. Zoster is a serious uh, um, uh, adverse event and it is an opportunistic infection. A lot of details will be presented on this at the meeting. So thanks for tuning in. Hi, this is Kevin Winter. I'm a professor of infectious diseases and epidemiology here at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. I'm happy to give you a very brief uh, summary of the poster from ULAR. This is the integrated safety analysis of filgotinib treatment for rheumatoid arthritis from seven clinical trials. This is um, a condensation and evaluation of data from uh, the phase three program as well as phase two program of filgotinib in the RA uh, clinical development program. Uh, in summary, uh, we presented several uh, different data sets in this uh, poster. Uh, we presented data from uh, placebo-controlled uh, portions of those trials up to 12 weeks, as well as uh, extended comparative data up to 52 weeks between exposure groups, as well as a, a long-term as-treated analysis uh, that considered all uh, filgotinib exposure uh, alone. Uh, in terms of the summary of adverse events, I can just summarize in general uh, adverse events between filgotinib uh, of both dosing groups as well as active comparators were quite similar. And this extended to, uh, to all, all events, serious adverse events, deaths, non-serious adverse events, 
uh, the event uh, rates were similar across arms, and we really didn't see uh, any significant differences between the 200 and 100 milligram uh, dosing. In terms of adverse events of special interest, uh, of course, infectious events are, are near and dear to my heart. Uh, in terms of overall uh, infections, there was no difference between these do uh, dosing groups. Uh, in the serious infections, or SIEs, uh, between 0.6 and 1.0% of patients in the first 12 weeks developed an SIE. Uh, the rate was slightly lower for placebo. That was the 0.6%. Uh, and, and the 200 and 100 milligram filgo arms had 1 and 0.9% respectively. In terms of longer-term data, uh, in the as-treated long-term uh, extension, the, the rate was actually higher, I'm sure, I'm sorry, the long-term extended data set, I should say, the rate was actually higher for filgotinib 100 milligram versus the 200 milligram. It was 3.3 per 100 patient years versus 1.7 per 100 patient years. So, uh, you know, slightly different rates here, actually statistically significantly higher for the lower dosing group, contrary to what we, we might expect. So. So my conclusion is there's really no no difference uh, in rates here in terms of the 200 is, is not higher, uh, certainly not higher than the 100 milligram rate, and they, they appear quite similar. Uh, these rates for uh, filgotinib for SIEs were similar to the rate seen uh, with um, adalimumab, where the rate was 3.4 per 100 patient years. Uh, in terms of other events, herpes zoster, uh, we do see some elevation in herpes zoster as compared uh, in the 200 milligrams as compared to 100 milligrams. The rate was 1.7 per 100 patient years versus 1.1. Uh, so maybe a, a slight elevation that's dose-dependent there, but these, these instance rates were not statistically significantly different from one another. The rate for adalimumab was also lower. It was 0.7. So a trend there that uh, we have seen in other JAK inhibitor programs where uh, there does seem to be some elevation in the risk of zoster. I will point out, though, that the overall rates are, are fairly low, and they're not as high as what we've seen in other programs. Uh, and the reasons for that, um, I don't know yet. Uh, we, we need to figure that out. Um, in terms of opportunistic infection, um, in the uh, as-treated long-term data analysis, the rates were quite, quite low, 0.1 uh, per 100 patient years for the 200 milligram group and 0.3 per uh, 100 patient years in the Philgo 100 milligram group. Uh, these rates were, were similar and actually slightly lower than what was reported for adalimumab. Again, no statistical difference between them. The rate for adalimumab was, was 0.7 per 100 patient years. The types of opportunistic infections reported, um, some of these were herpes zoster events. Otherwise, uh, they were quite quite rare. Uh, there was uh, there were several uh, tuberculosis cases um, as well as uh, candida esophagitis and several other uh, of the usual opportunistic infections that we've seen from, from other uh, biologic and, and JAK programs. In terms of uh, other important events, particularly uh, malignancy, uh, rates were were low. They were 0.5 per 100 patient years in both the 200 and 100 uh, milligram arms. This is in the long term as treated analysis. Uh, as for NMSC, again, we also saw similar rates there, 0.2 per 100 patient years in both filgo dosing arms. Um, you know, lastly, MACE and VTE. Uh, VTE, of course, is everyone's uh, interest with regards to JAK inhibitors. 
Uh, we have low rates uh, seen here in the program, 0.2 overall for Philco 200 and 0.1 per 100 patient years for Philco 100. Uh, and these rates were similar to what was seen with adalimumab in the first 52 weeks where the rate was 0.3 per 100 patient years. Uh, so in summary, in this integrated analysis, filgotinib appeared to be well tolerated. Um, there seems to be a slight increased risk in herpes zoster, which is what we've seen with other JAK inhibitors, although the rate uh, is lower than what we've seen in other clinical development programs uh, can, uh, in, in RA. The reason for which we, we don't know uh, at this point if that's real or, or if it'll hold up in the real world, so we'll have to see. Um, in terms of SIE, the rates were similar to what we've seen in other JAK uh, inhibitors, uh, and there really wasn't uh, any sort of dose increase associated with SIEs uh, when comparing 200 milligrams versus 100 milligrams. And the rates of VTE were low, and they were similar between uh, dosing groups and similar to what was seen uh, in the active comparator adalimumab. So with that, I'll, I'll conclude, and I look forward to seeing more data uh, with Phil Gottman. Thank you. The next two papers focus on the risk of venous thromboembolic events in patients with RA. Professor McInnes analyzes the incidence of VTE among patients in the Apatacitinib Select Clinical Program, and Professor Strongfeld compares the incidence of VTE across TNF inhibitors and conventional DMARDs. Well, hello, my name is Ian McInnes. I'm the Muirhead Professor of Medicine at the University of Glasgow. It's a real pleasure to tell you about this poster, which was presented at the recent virtual ULAR Congress 2020. Now, this particular poster concerns the incidence and risk of venous thromboembolic events in people with rheumatoid arthritis enrolled in the SELECT clinical trial program, which was investigating the efficacy and safety of uparacitinib. The background here is that uh, people with rheumatoid arthritis have an approximately twofold increased risk of venous thromboembolism, and that includes both pulmonary embolism and deep venous thrombosis. In addition, regardless of rheumatoid, uh, having a prior venous thromboembolism or being obese are additional risk factors for the occurrence of a VTE. Now, VT events have been observed in people taking JAK inhibitors, including apatacitinib, and this particular study had as its purpose the, the aim of describing the VT incidence in people with RA receiving apatacitinib compared to active comparators in the clinical trial program, and also to try and evaluate risk factors contained in there. Now, adjudicated events of treatment divergent venous thromboembolism were determined in five randomized phase three trials, for evaluating both 15 and or 30 milligrams of hepatocytin and one evaluating only 15 milligrams of that dose. Uh, the incidence of VT was also determined for people with adalimumab and methotrexate and methotrexate monotherapy. Uh, the events are attributed to treatment received at the time of event and summarized per events per 100 patient years. And the VT risk factors was assessed using a univariate Cox regression model. So what were the key results? Well, 35 ET events were observed across treatment groups and the exposure adjusted treatment emergent event rates of VT were 0.5 for hepatocytin 15, 0.3 for 
30 milligrams. Um, for adalimumab and methotrexate, 0.5 and 0.4 for methotrexate monotherapy. And there was no obvious pattern to event onset across treatments. Uh, the uh, events of PE, DVT, or both PE and DVT were reported across treatment groups. Now, patients with VTE were on average older, and their mean BMI tended to be higher. No real surprise there. Um, thinking about past history, in the paracitinib groups, 135 of 2,629 in the 15 milligram group, group and 62 of 1,204 in the 30 milligram group had a prior history of VTE. And of these, 3.7% and 3.2% respectively experienced VTE. So uh, a univariate Cox regression model identified BMI and prior history of VTE as factors associated with VTE in the paracitinib 15 and 30 milligram groups. And also age and non-steroidal use were shown to be associated with VTE risk in the paracitinib 15 milligram, but not 30 milligram group. So concluding from this poster, VTE event rates appear balanced across the paracitinib doses and active comparator groups in RA, no clear signal coming through. Uh, risk factors are VTE uh, identified through univariate analysis in patients on a paracitinib included prior history of VTE and BMI, and these were factors already known. Is this the definitive answer? Well, no, of course it's not. This is uh, limited by sample size, limiting the analysis to univariate approaches mainly. And I think it's going to be very important to follow this up in much larger groups of patients, both in the context of trial long-term extension and eventually in registry context before we really get a definitive answer. So thank you very much for your attention. I, I hope that's been helpful to you. My name is Anja Strangfeld and I'm working in the epidemiology unit of the German Rheumatism Research Center in Berlin, Germany. The data I'm presenting are from the German Biologics Register Rabbit and we work together as colleagues with the statisticians and me, I'm a um, physician and we took data from our um, rabbit register. In the following, I'm going to present the results from our analysis regarding the influence of TNF inhibitors compared to CSDMA treatment on the risk of venous thromboembolic events, which were presented at the Open Plenary Abstract Session at the EULA Congress 2020. Background for our study was that patients with rheumatoid arthritis are at a twofold greater risk for venous thromboembolism compared to the general population, but the influence of biologic DMAR treatments, especially TNF inhibitors, compared with CSDMARs are conflicting. Recently, an observational study among patients with inflammatory bowel disease indicated that TNF inhibitors may have a protective effect against VTEs. With this analysis, we wanted to assess the effects of TNF inhibitors and other biologic DMARDs on the risk for venous thromboembolic events. We took data from the German Biologics Register Rabbit, which is a prospective longitudinally followed cohort of RA patients and included all serious venous thromboembolic events that were reported to this rabbit register in the analysis. 
A few words to the rabbit register. This register was started in 2001 and since then RA patients can be enrolled when they start a treatment with a biologic or a targeted synthetic DEMA treatment as soon as this substance is approved for treatment of RA. In addition, patients starting a CSDMA treatment after at least one DMAT failure are enrolled as control group. Once enrolled, all patients are observed for up to 10 years regardless of any treatment changes. During this time, rheumatologists as well as patients provide information at regular time points at least every six months on the disease course, for example, on disease activity and treatment details. Rheumatologists also report regularly all adverse events that have occurred since the last study visit. Patients included in this specific analysis had to be enrolled between January 2009 and April 2019, and they had to have at least one follow-up. This applied to more than 11,000 patients. When we stratify patients by treatment group in CSDMAT, TNF inhibitor and other BDMAT groups, we find that patients treated with biologic substances are more frequently seropositive, they have more joint erosions and more treatment failures at enrollment in rabbit. Their disease activity is higher and they have less functional capacity and more frequently comorbidities than patients treated with CSD-MARTs. A total of 116 thromboembolic events were reported to the register, resulting in an incidence rate of 2.6 per thousand patient years. Stratified by treatment groups, the crude incidence rates did not differ significantly between the groups. To calculate hazard ratios for venous thrombotic, uh, thromboembolic events, we used the Cox regression and we also used propensity score weighting to adjust for confounding by indication due to the different patient characteristics in the treatment groups. This Cox regression revealed that age of 65 years or above and higher disease activity measured with the CRP are associated with an increased risk of venous thromboembolic events. Better physical function and treatment with TNF inhibitors were associated with a significantly decreased risk. All other variables that were investigated in the Cox regression did not show any significant associations. We therefore concluded that compared to CSTMAR treatment, TNF inhibitor treatment was significantly associated with a reduced risk for VTE. Age of 65 years and above, lower capacity of physical function and high CRP levels increased the risk for venous thromboembolic events. Thank you. In our final section, we have three presentations reviewing the incidence of serious infections in patients with RA. Professor Kevin Winthrop, 
reviews two abstracts analyzing the incidence of serious infection and herpes zoster in patients treated with upadacitinib. And Professor Strongfeld explores the risk of herpes zoster across targeted synthetic DMARDs and conventional synthetic DMARDs. Hi, it's Kevin Winthrop. I'm a professor of infectious diseases and epidemiology here at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. I'm happy to, to give you a quick overview of uh, the following ULAR presentation entitled Characterization of Serious Infections with Upadacidinib in Patients with Rheumatoid Arthritis. So in brief, this was uh, data collected from uh, five randomized phase three UPA trials in the RA clinical development program. This involved looking at the safety of two UPA doses, the approved 15 milligram once daily dose, as well as a higher dose, the 30 milligram once daily dose. Uh, we uh, combined data from all these trials and compared rates of uh, adverse events of special interest uh, in, in this manuscript, uh, we focused on serious infections of all kinds specifically. Uh, the types of individuals uh, enrolled by exposure arm were, were similar in their characteristics. Uh, most people were on background methotrexate, and uh, approximately uh, 45 to 50% of individuals were on background corticosteroids in each of the exposure groups. The exposure groups consisted of the UPA 15 milligram group, the UPA 30 milligram group, and the methotrexate monotherapy group, as well as an active comparator of uh, biologic comparator adalimumab 40 milligrams um, every other week with background methotrexate. Um, in terms of rates of serious infections, we saw a significantly higher rate with the 30 milligram UPA group as compared to the other three groups. The, the rate or incidence rate uh, per 100 patient years was 3.2 for UPA 15 milligrams once daily, and this was very similar to what was seen in both the methotrexate monotherapy group as well as the adalimumab and methotrexate group. In terms of uh, rates of serious infections uh, over time, when looking at uh, periods of six-month uh, intervals of exposure over the two-year time period, uh, we've, we saw a a very similar rates or slightly diminished rates over time for SIEs with uh, 15 milligrams uh, once daily. And this is what we would expect to see over time really with any, with any um, DMARD uh, being studied. In terms of risk factors for serious infection, we did uh, perform a univariate uh, analysis. The usual risk factors emerged from that in terms of advanced age, uh, smoking and diabetes being risk factors for serious infection. Uh, there was also a slight increase, although it wasn't statistically significant, uh, in, in terms of higher incidence rates being seen in patients on uh, background corticosteroids. Uh, there was no increased risk seen in, in patients on uh, background methotrexate. Uh, lastly, in this abstract, we did also address opportunistic infections. Most of these opportunistic infections were um, disseminated or, uh, you know, cutaneous disseminated herpes zoster events. Um, opportunistic infections overall were quite rare. They were more uh, common in the 30 milligram UPA group. In the 15 milligram UPA group, uh, the types of 
opportunistic infections were very similar to the types that we've seen in other JAK inhibitor uh, development programs. A smattering of esophageal uh, candidiasis, uh, the aforementioned herpes zoster, uh, a few cases of um, mycobacterial infections, in one case, a CMV, among several other uh, rare infections. Again, overall quite rare in rates that we would uh, expect for, for this type of molecule and similar to what we've seen uh, with the other JAK inhibitors to date. So to summarize, um, and I should mention also tuberculosis. Uh, there were several cases of tuberculosis. Uh, and again, uh, the, most of these occurred in patients from high TB burden countries. Uh, and it highlights the need to screen for TB prior to using uh, JAK inhibitors in general, as well as biologics. So in conclusion, uh, I'll just say the rates of serious and opportunistic infections were uh, higher in patients receiving UPA 30 milligrams as compared to the other dosing groups. Uh, the rates of SIEs in UPA 15 as well as adalimumab were quite comparable, quite similar. In terms of um, herpes zoster, this is the most uh, common opportunistic infection in the setting of JAK inhibition in general. Uh, and what we saw here with, with UPA was very similar to what we've seen uh, with the other JAK inhibitor programs. In terms of risk factors for serious infection, they're the same risk factors that you see uh, in other RA uh, experiences, uh, no matter what the background uh, medication is. Uh, patients who are older, who smoke, who have diabetes, chronic lung disease, et cetera, uh, what you can do is limit their prednisone use, uh, make them younger if, if you can, <laughs> but uh, try to get them to stop smoking, better control the diabetes, and, and up-to-date their vaccination um, prior to using these drugs, as well as, again, screen them for the, the appropriate infections, uh, viral hepatitis, and uh, TB prior to starting the treatments. Uh, so with that, uh, thank you very much, and um, I hope you enjoy ULAR. Staying with Professor Winthrop, next up is the incidence and risk factors for herpes zoster in RA patients receiving upadacitinib. Hi, this is uh, Kevin Winthrop, Professor of Infectious Diseases and Epidemiology here at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. I'm happy to give you a very brief overview of the incidence and risk factors for herpes zoster and rheumatoid arthritis uh, in patients receiving UPA, upadacitinib. Uh, this was data from uh, the Phase three uh, upadacitinib uh, rheumatoid arthritis program in which we uh, looked at the incidence and types of herpes zoster events occurring in patients uh, on UPA 15 milligrams once daily, the, the approved dose, as well as 30 milligrams once daily and, and two comparator exposure groups, methotrexate monotherapy, as well as adalimumab every other week with background methotrexate. In general, uh, across the program, uh, most patients were on background methotrexate uh, approximately 45 to 50% of patients were on background low-dose steroids, and otherwise uh, they were quite similar in their attributes. With regards to herpes zoster, we did see a dose-dependent uh, increase in risk, uh, similar to what we've seen with other uh, JAK inhibitors uh, that have been approved to date in, in RA. The risk did vary by region. They were highest in uh, Asia, uh, particularly among Japanese uh, and Korean uh, areas of enrollment. Um, overall, the incidence rates were per 100 patient years, uh, 3.1 in patients using UPA 15 milligrams, uh, and um, 
5.5 in those using UPA 30 milligrams, uh, and then uh, rates of only 1.1 in patients using adalimumab, or I'm sorry, 1.0 in adalimumab and 1.1 in those receiving methotrexate monotherapy. So we see a, a, a two or threefold higher uh, risk of herpes zoster uh, in these patients uh, as compared to the comparator therapies. Uh, and again, this is similar to what we see with other jack, jack inhibitors, both in the real world, as well as what we've seen in other developmental programs. Uh, interestingly, uh, similar to the other JAK inhibitors, uh, invasive zoster was very, very rare. There was one, only one case of meningoencephalitis, uh, and this is similar, uh, again, to other JAKs where that type of presentation is quite rare. Most of these cases are cutaneous and unilateral uh, and involve one or two dermatomes. Uh, in terms of uh, other uh, disseminated disease, yes, there were cases of uh, disseminated disease that were, were primarily limited to the skin, uh, with exception of the CNS case I described. Uh, there was a small percent of people who had ocular vents, uh, which is just another form of cutaneous uh, herpes zoster. Uh, in terms of recurrence of herpes zoster, there, there was a small number of people, similar to what we've seen with tofacitinib and baricitinib. Uh, Five, it was five patients, uh, actually, in the UPA 15-milligram group and nine patients in the UPA 30-milligram group. So 3.5% and 7.1% uh, of people having zoster uh, actually had recurrent events. It had at least a second or more event during the trial. Uh, these are the kind of individuals um, that we do see uh, clinically. They're, they're fairly infrequent, but when they do occur, uh, they're good candidates for um, antiviral suppression to, to prevent that uh, recurrence. In terms of our modeling of risk factors for herpes zoster, uh, we did perform uh, a univariate and multivariate uh, analysis. And um, not surprisingly, uh, we saw the usual risk factors uh, in terms of advancing age uh, being a, a primary risk factor for, for zoster, as well as um, the region of enrollment being Asia. Uh, again, Asian patients, particularly in, in certain subgroups, as mentioned, uh, were at much higher risk for zoster, similar to other programs. Uh, also interesting in the model is patients who had a history of zoster previously were at um, much higher risk for zoster uh, in this uh, experience, in this development program. And it, it does raise the idea that there's something different about those individuals, that they, they may be just don't have as uh, robust cell media immunity at baseline. They've already demonstrated the ability to break down previously. Uh, it's somewhat contrary to what I, I would have thought because one would think that once you've had a zoster event, you'd be protected for, for a long time. So, uh, and that is usually what, what we see, but, but this was a significant risk factor for people to develop zoster uh, once starting uh, UBA in this uh, program. In terms of background methotrexate, there was no risk. And interestingly, also, um, the use of background corticosteroids was not a significant risk factor in um, the development of zoster in this program. Uh, I'm not sure why. It could be a fluke, or maybe it's just low numbers. But um, this obviously is a very important risk factor for zoster in general. But, but we did not see uh, any sort of interplay between it and UPA in this analysis. Um, in summary, herpes zoster, the risk is elevated with upadacitinib. 
the rates and risk elevations seem uh, appear similar to what we've seen in other JAK inhibitor trials uh, in RA. And the majority of cases similar to the other experiences are uh, you know, uni or multidermatomal in terms of one or two dermatomes, uh, and that invasive cases are, are quite rare. The noted risk factors of um, Asian enrollment uh, are present here, just as they are in the other um, JAK inhibitor programs, and particularly patients from Japan uh, and Korea. And the reasons for this are, are still unclear, and it's an area of active investigation. Um, I'll just end by saying it's important to prevent zoster. We do have uh, vaccines available. We are starting uh, several studies looking at the efficacy of uh, the new subunit vaccine in the setting of JAK inhibition. Uh, and there's, there's several studies that, that are starting uh, soon to, to address that need. Um, thanks very much, and I hope you enjoy ULAR. In the final presentation, Professor Strongfeld explores the risk of herpes zoster across targeted synthetic DMARDs and conventional synthetic DMARDs. In the following, I'm going to talk about our results regarding the herpes zoster risk in patients with rheumatoid arthritis under different DMARD treatments. Background of the study is the following. The incidence of herpes zoster in patients with rheumatoid arthritis is at least twofold higher compared to the general population. In some cases, herpes zoster is followed by episodes of painful postherpetic neuralgia with a substantial decrease in quality of life of the patients. The reactivation of the varicella zoster virus causing the herpes zoster is triggered by a decline of cellular immunity. This can be due to aging or immunosuppression of any kind. Conflicting results are reported regarding the influence of treatment on the risk of herpes zoster. With this analysis, we wanted to compare incidence rates of herpes zoster in RA patients under treatment with DMARDs with different modes of action in order to find potential risk factors for the herpes zoster occurrence. We took data from the German biologics register RABBIT, which is a prospective longitudinally followed cohort of RA patients and all serious and non-serious herpes zoster events reported to this rapid register were included. First, a few words on the rabbit register. This register was started in 2001. Since then, RA patients can be enrolled when they start a treatment with a biologic or a targeted synthetic DMAR treatment, which is approved for the treatment of RA. In addition, patients starting a CSDMAR treatment after at least one DMAR failure are enrolled as control group. Once enrolled, patients are observed for up to 10 years regardless of any treatment changes. During this time, rheumatologists as well as patients provide information at regular time points, at least every six months, on the disease course, for example, on disease activity and treatment details. The rheumatologist reports regularly all adverse events that have occurred since the last study visit. 
Patients included in this specific analysis regarding herpes zoster had to be enrolled between January 2007 to April 2019 and had to have at least one follow-up. This applied to more than 12,400 patients, providing more than 53,000 patient years of observation. If we compare patient characteristics at baseline stratified by different DMARD groups according to the modes of action, we find that patients treated with biologic DMARDs have a higher disease activity and lower physical function than patients under CSDMARD treatment. This difference is even more pronounced in patients treated with biologics which are usually applied as second or third line biologics, and these are T-cell modulating and B-cell targeted treatments. Regarding the herpes zoster events, we found 452 events reported in 433 patients. This results in an overall rate of 8.6 per thousand patient years. 52 events of all those herpes zoster events were serious. Stratified by treatment groups, we see that the incidence rates under BDMAR treatments are higher than in the CSDMAR treated group, with significantly increased crude incidence rates in patients under JAK inhibitor treatment. The rates of herpes zoster events rated as serious are also higher in BDMAR-treated patients, but with no significant difference to CSDMARs. This is different for treatment with JAK inhibitors. The Cox regression analysis revealed that higher age and intake of glucocorticoids were associated with an increased risk of herpes zoster. The risk with glucocorticoids did even show a dose-dependent increase. Adjusted for age, sex and glucocorticoids, as well as for baseline differences in patient characteristics, treatment with monoclonal TNF antibodies were found to be significantly associated with an increased risk for herpes zoster compared to CSDMAR treatment. A similar association was found also for other biologic DMARDs. These are T-cell modulators as well as B-cell targeted therapies and IL-6 inhibitors. The risk for herpes zoster seems to be highest in patients treated with JAK inhibitors. Thank you for listening to this edition of Insights at ULAR 2020. Make sure to subscribe to the CSF podcast channel on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss out on our other ULAR 2020 content. Subscribe now to listen to condensed daily highlights of the ULAR Congress, in addition to a complete Congress review presented by Professor Rike Alton and Professor Thomas Dorner. If you found this informative, why not listen to our regular podcasts, which include author interviews and monthly reviews of the latest cytokine signaling papers hosted by the CSF chairman, Professor Ian McInnes. You can also visit cytokinesignaling.com for access to a wide range of free educational resources, including monthly side summaries of the latest papers 
and accredited CME courses.